Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find a little postcard toward the end of the New Testament called Philemon. If you're wondering where this book is, just find the book of Hebrews, and it's right in front of it, that page right there in front. Philemon. Looking forward to going through this with you over the next uh, month or so. I've never actually preached through Philemon before, and we're calling this the beauty of genuine uh, friendship, and really we're going to add the word spiritual today to that. And speaking of postcards, uh, from time to time when you get those postcards or those letters or emails that are the kind that you don't just read and chuck, the kind that you keep. My wife said, that's a keeper uh, because there's so much love, there's so much encouragement, there's so much thought that goes into it, so to speak. That's this letter of the Apostle Paul uh, to Philemon. And really, if you know the backdrop of it and you're familiar with it, you might be tempted to uh, think this is sort of a setup uh, by Paul, but I can assure you he's not being disingenuous, especially in this opening, these opening words, he shares his endearing friendship that he has with uh, Philemon. He is, however, banking, that is, Paul sort of banking on the depth of their incredibly deep friendship uh, to bring about a huge ask, which would have been heretofore just unthinkable in the first century, what he's about ready to ask him to do. We'll get to that ask. Uh, the next time around. But here's how it all begins. Philemon, uh, choose whatever chapter you want, the first seven verses. How's that? Paul. And Paul starts with his own name. That makes sense. We don't do that anymore. We sign our letters at the very end, but in the first century, they signed it at the beginning. No question about who's writing here. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, probably his wife, our sister, and Archippus, possibly his son, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective, for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us, for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now you can tell just by reading, this is a very heartfelt letter. Before he even gets into the sum and substance of his letter, it's a very personal letter. In fact, I've I've often thought, how did it make its way into Scripture? And I, you know, I've, I like to think that maybe the Holy Spirit uh, said to God the Father and God the Son, I mean, this, this letter <laughs> is so personal, so heartfelt, so endearing, so beautifully written, so the heart of Paul, so gospelly. I think we ought to put it in the Bible, and God the Father and God the Son said, let's do it. I have no way of proving that, but of course, there's only 25 verses, and there's Four major themes, they all start with F here. There is fellowship, there's friendship, there's forgiveness, and there's fate. And by fate, I put it in there because it just fits the other S. I really mean providence, the providence of God and the governing of things. The main characters in this letter are threefold. There is the Apostle Paul already mentioned. He's in prison in Rome. There is 
Philemon. He's a wealthy Christian man. And there is his runaway slave, Onesimus. Onesimus means useful. He's anything but useful to his owner, Philemon. And really, this is the stuff of, this is really wonderful drama. It's the stuff of movies, except there's no, you know, there's no pyrotechnics, there's no computer generation, no high-tech anything. Just a portrait of a beautiful friendship, and I might add, a spiritual friendship which makes all the difference. Now, we all need friends. Can I get an amen on that? We all need friends. Even those of us who don't have any friends, we know we need friends. There are probably more definitions out there on what a friend is than any other class of people. I mean, you can, you can just read hundreds and hundreds of definitions, and, and some of them, many of them have elements of truth to them, but they're all so sentimentalized and romanticized. I mean, he's the one who comes in when the whole world goes up. Whatever. We're going to stay away from the sentimental stuff and just stick with the Bible on friendships here, if you don't mind. The, the person of concern in this letter is Onesimus. He's the slave. And really, you should know from a backdrop perspective that the entire Roman Empire was built on slavery. The estimates are up to 40% of the empire were slaves. Now, when we say that, we have to get out, we have to get out of our minds the 18th and 19th century version of American slavery uh, it's, it wasn't anything like that. In fact, did you know that many of the slaves were super highly educated? Some of them were doctors and lawyers. But you also had your lower class uh, slaves as well. One thing that every slave had in common in every dispensation is they're owned. Somebody owned them. And this would be the same here uh, as well. Now, the one thing you didn't want to get caught doing if you were a slave, two things, actually. You wouldn't want to be caught stealing, and you wouldn't want to be caught running. And Onesimus was guilty of both, because both were considered capital crimes. You could, be, you could be lashed, you could be beaten, you could be imprisoned. In some cases, there would be capital punishment, because slaves were a little more than chattel. Uh, a lot of things like that. In fact, if you were caught as a fugitive and caught, you were oftentimes branded with an F on your forehead. F for the Latin word uh, fugit uh, fugitus, which means fugitive. How would you like to be walking around with that? And if you were a thief, you might have CF on your forehead, which was a Latin phrase and an acronym, really, that meant beware the thief. So if you, if you had that brand on your forehead and you walked into a Marketplace, you can imagine all the owners just, you know, cowering over their, their goods. Onesimus, again, was both. He was a thief and a runner. We know from the sum and substance of this letter, he has stolen from Philemon. We don't know how much. It's enough that Paul says, look, charge it to me. It has to be, had to be substantial. And he has run. Now, we know that in the providence of all things, the fate of all things, he runs into the apostle Paul. That means if he went from Colossae to Rome, that would have been quite a trip, a huge trip. I mean, we don't know if he'd have followed this or if he'd gone across the Aegean Sea. Either way, it was a long trip, and it would have made sense for him to go to Rome. Rome had nearly a million people. He could have just got caught up into the, the crowds and lost there because you don't want to get caught if you're a slave uh, on the run. But in the providence of God, 
he meets the apostle Paul. We don't know it. Paul doesn't explain how this happened. Paul's under house arrest. Maybe Paul got an opportunity to preach. Maybe because Paul and Philemon were friends. Onesimus had heard about it. It's just pure conjecture, pure speculation as to how they came and they encountered one another. One way or another, they did. Onesimus heard the gospel, trusted in Christ, and then became so endearing to Paul. Verse 12 says, Paul says, he's my very heart. So I take that he was probably meeting Paul's needs. If you were with us in our study of, uh, of Philippians, you know, Paul's in jail there, same time frame. And of course, they were always relying on somebody from outside to help them. I'm, I take it that Onesimus was that person. And Paul's about ready to, now he's going to send him back. This is unthinkable. Slaves didn't run away to go back. And back to Philemon. He's the owner here. He's mentioned there at the, uh, the end of verse 1. He's an interesting character here. Philemon is, a, is an individual whose name means, his name means affectionate. Uh, it could even be translated kiss, except he's pretty much kissed his, uh, his uh, slave goodbye here. He's not a pastor. He's a wealthy layman. He has means. The church is meeting in his house, which is really saying something. By the way, keep in mind in the first century, all these churches, when you read like Ephesus, don't be thinking churches of 500 or 1,000. Think churches of 50, 60, or 70, okay? And uh, this one wouldn't have been, I mean, you can't get that many people in a house, even a large house, maybe accommodate 60, 70 people. We don't know, but it wasn't all that big. But the church was mean. That means he had means. That means he was courageous because the church was not something the Roman Empire had yet was yet to, to recognize, not for hundreds of years even. So that's Philemon. And he's, you know, he figured he's never going to get this guy. This guy has robbed him and he's taken off. He's, it's a total loss. The man whose name, whose name means useful has become useless. And there's a play on words in verse 11 on that. But imagine the shock that he would have had when Paul sends him back. Every time I read this, I think of a guy back in my, our former ministry that we led to Christ. His name was Dean, came to Christ, uh, really began to grow in grace, got baptized, was serving the Lord. About six, eight months after he got saved, he comes into my office and he says, I've got to fess up to something. I said, what's that? He goes, I'm a fugitive. I said, what? He goes, I'm from Texas. I, I, fled. I fled the law in Texas and that's, you know, I, and I fled prosecution. And God has laid it on my heart to go back and, and pay my penalty. He did. He went back to jail. But I commended him for that. And every time I read this account, it's a lot different, but there are some similarities. What, what I want to do for the beginning of this in these seven verses is look at what a spiritual friendship looks like. And it's not going to look like anything some of you have ever experienced. Some of you know exactly what this is talking about. Some of you have no clue as to what this is talking about. But you need, we all need to know what, what is incorporated into a genuine spiritual friendship. And the first thing I want you to note is that genuine spiritual friendship is determined by gratitude. And you saw that in verse 4. I thank God always as I remember you in my prayers. And he actually talks about why he's grateful for him. He calls him a beloved brother. He calls him a fellow worker. He speaks of his love. He speaks of his faith. 
And when you have a friend who's a real friend, or you're a friend to him, and vice versa, there, there, there is genuine gratitude. You know this, don't you? There's gratitude, and you, you have to express that gratitude once in a while. It's not enough to just say hi to them. Uh, today is one of our missionaries' birthdays. Uh, Lucas Bear, formerly on staff for nearly a decade. And uh, it's his birthday. I couldn't just say happy birthday, Lucas. I had to, I had to throw some adjective in there. Uh, my fellow servant in the gospel, I can't remember what I wrote, but there's adjectives in there. Because it was a reflection of my gratitude to God for him. And let me just tell you something. If I'm not thankful for you, and you're not thankful for me, we're probably not friends. That's, that's not rocket science here, right? We're probably not friends. But genuine spiritual friendship is determined by gratitude. You just know it. You're so grateful to God for them, and Paul is. Secondly, it's driven. Listen to this. It's driven by godliness. I want you to look at verse 5 again where he says, I hear of your love, agapao, and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. I hear of your love. Now, just to let you know, the word philemon does mean affection. It means kiss. But it, it's also a form of the word love. You ever heard of philos love or the, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love? Philos is the reciprocal kind of love. Philemon's name means to reciprocate love. It means you love me because I love you. I love you because you love me. And we, we appreciate those kinds of relationships, don't we? It's a real good relationship. We need philos relationships. But Paul here calls Philemon a lover. He uses the word agapao. That's the form of the word agape. It's the God so loved the world kind of love. It's unconditional love. And we all know what conditional love is like. I'm thinking. You've all experienced conditional love. And most of us, if we're in a family, we've, we've experienced unconditional love. I have to share the story I came across recently. True story. Happened toward the end of the Korean War. So now we're talking 1950s. Happened in San Diego in a very wealthy home where the phone rang and the mother picked up the phone to hear the voice of her son on the other side of the phone. Delighted that he, would, he had made it through this awful war in Korea. He said, Mom, he said, I'm coming home. She said, wonderful. He said, except I'm bringing a friend with me. She said, great, bring your friend. She said, he said, no, Mom, I want our friend to live with us. She says, well, why, why, why would you ask that? She, he says, well, Mom, my friend's been hurt bad. I mean, like real bad. He's lost a leg. He's lost an arm, and he's lost an eye. And his mother said to him, son, I know that you've been traumatized uh, by this, and you have this friend. He's dear to you. He can come and stay for a couple weeks. No, no, mom, I want him to live with us. Well, how about maybe a couple of months? We could even maybe keep him for up to six months. Mom, you don't understand. I want him to live with us. And with that, the mother said, honey, you're not getting it. This, you, you, you've been traumatized. You don't understand how uh, th this would be bring such pain and inconvenience to us. It would be a constant, he would be a constant problem. You can't do it, click. The next day, true story, they received a telegram from the Navy uh, telling them that their son had died. He jumped out of a hotel right there in San Diego, not far from where he lived. That's where the phone call came from. And imagine the horror of these parents when they went to the morgue to identify their one-legged, one-armed, and one-eyed son. 
We all know what conditional love is. We've experienced it at one time or another. But did you catch Paul's description of Philemon's love? Look what he says. It's love. And this is a total setup, and I love this. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for, watch this, all the saints. All the saints. Onesimus was a part of the all. That's the setup. He hasn't even mentioned Onesimus' name yet. I love this. And what Philemon had done for other believers without condition. Paul was about to test by laying a bombshell on him in the verses that will follow the next time around to test his love. But here's the point. He, he knew, he knew he'd come through. If you look at verse 21, he says, I know you, I'm confident of this. And that's what friends, real spiritual friends, you're confident of the kind of love that's unconditional with one another. So this is, we're talking about spiritual friendship that's driven by godliness, and that godliness is unconditional and, and it's well-rounded. Again, look what he says in verse 5. You have love for the Lord. He said you have love for the Lord Jesus and the saints. You have love this way, you got love this way. A couple of years ago, a couple of authors wrote a book about all the stupid things that Christians do. Have you ever seen Christians do stupid things? No, don't point any fingers here. The title of the book was, I'm Fine with God, It's Christians I Can't Stand. Here's my point. The Apostle Paul would never have written such a book, much less made a statement like that. And did anybody have to deal with more messed up people than Paul? Can you say Corinthians? And did he confront them? Yes, he did, but he never quit loving them. Genuine friends are genuinely godly. That means they're well-rounded. They love both God and messed up people, which last I checked makes pretty much all of us. But some of us are really messed up, right? I mean, even more so. And this kind of love is the kind of love that gets down into the trenches, gets down into the dirt, gets down into the dirge and dregs of society. And I even have somebody in my own mind as I was studying the text this week from our church that came to Christ. They've struggled, they fall, and they pick them up, they fall, because the righteous may fall seven times and what? Get up again. But that takes those who have a well-rounded, godly kind of love who will be there for them. Godly friends encourage godly friends toward well-rounded, unconditional kind of love. Thirdly, genuine spiritual friendship is, watch this, deepened by the gospel. Now, I love this point, so stay with me on this one. We're looking at verse 6, which the ESV translates like this. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Sounds cool, hard to understand. In fact, I'll tell you how hard it is. One theologian put it like this, the meaning of almost every word in this verse is disputed, unquote. I memorized this verse 35 years ago out of the old NIV 1984. Anybody got any of those NIVs laying around? Sure you do. Keep them because they don't sell them anymore. I'm not saying it's better or worse. In fact, it's probably not a better. The, the translation's gotten better. 
But in, I memorized it because, I mean, the, the, it was so powerful to me. And I have quoted it for 35 years because of the teaching behind the verse from the NIV 1984. And I was, I'm convinced, the only one on the planet that has ever memorized this verse out of the NIV 1984, much less quoted it. Until just the other day. I was in a coffee shop, ran into a friend I haven't seen for about a year and a half. He's an author. He's written a couple of books. We're talking back and forth. He says, hey, Numbers, what are you preaching on now? I said, yeah, just starting a series on Philemon. Philemon? He says, I, I sign every one of my books, Philemon 6, old NIV version. I said, <laughs> we looked at each other. We both lip synced the verse together. <laughs> now there's two people on the whole planet know this verse. <laughs> you want to make it a thousand? Here it is. I pray that you may be active and sharing your faith. Watch this. Look at that. So that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Go ahead and take a picture of it because you're not going to find it anywhere else. You'll dig around to find this verse. Look at it again. I'm, I'm just going to leave it up there for a while. I pray that you would be active and sharing your faith so that you may have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. Oh, by the way, C.S. Lewis, I'm think, I was thinking about this when I ran to my friend the other day. C.S. Lewis wrote, friendship is born in that moment when one person says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Isn't that cool? But if you look at this, there's something incredibly counterintuitive here. Because if you look at it, it's, it, and they, the old translation makes it sound like as you share your faith, you deepen your faith. And I think that's a true statement. Now, whether or not it's the best translation is debatable. And this isn't saying we shouldn't study because we should but the idea is when we activate our faith through obedience, and specifically in sharing Christ, God takes us deeper in our walk with God, and I know this to be true. The word effective in your ESV, translated active in the old NIV, the word effective, listen to this, really cool word. It's the Greek word ener energes, energes, and it's only used three times. We get a word energy from this word. It's only used three times in the entire New Testament. And every time it's used is incredibly instructive. But you need to know what the word energase literally means. Write it down. This is what it means. The word means activity that produces results. Did you catch that? Activity that produces results. So, for instance, Paul, and you know these, many of you know these verses. Paul, the writer of Hebrews, shared it. Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active, energase, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul, spirit, joints, marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts, the intentions of the heart. What can do that? The Bible can do that. The Bible has an energy about it. It has an activity about it. It has the ability about it. It has the fruit resultant uh, effectiveness about it to get in and change you. It's the only book, the only book God ever gave us that has a promise behind it to change your soul and your life while you're at it. 
And so that's what the word means. We had a missionary many years ago here at Sailorville Church. He wrote us every month. So communication wasn't the issue. He always wrote us a sermon, a whole sermon. He preached to us a sermon. And then he'd tell us he's, he's giving out tracts. He's going here. He's going over there for years. He's doing this. He, he, was there. he was a missionary for many years with a lot of activity and no results. We dropped him. Because we expect a missionary, I, we understand that it may take a long time to slug it out, learn the language, get in the trenches, but eventually we're looking for somebody who produces fruit. And God is saying that if you're this kind of person, if you're this kind of friend, if you're an activated person, you're taking the things that you know and you're obeying them, he will deepen you in your walk with God and there will be results. Another time this word is used is in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, where Paul says, I'm in Ephesus right now, I'm going to stay put, because a great door is open to me, and there are many adversaries. You've read that, right? Actually, it says, a great and effective door. Have you ever read that? That's the word, energase. A door is open to me. There are many adversaries, sure, where there's a door, there's a demon, where there's opportunity, there's opposition. But the fact is, Paul isn't just saying, man, I'm getting great opportunities. What he's saying is, I'm getting fruit. Things are happening. Souls are being saved. Those are the three times that word is used. Now, if you're wondering about my interpretation of this text, there are, there are four principles to Bible study. Most people say three. I've added one. Here they are. Observation, which asks the question, what do I see? What do I see? Secondly, interpretation. What does it mean? Most people go to the third one being application. How do I put this into practice? But I've added a third one that is before application, and it's the principle of correlation. Correlation asks the question, where else is this taught? Because the reformers talk about the analogia scriptura, which means the Bible always comes together. The Bible will never contradict itself. And you can believe that, amen? But if the Bible doesn't contradict itself, you know that if something is taught somewhere, it's going to be taught somewhere else. And indeed it is. Jesus says, if you will to do his will, you'll know the doctrine. And a, a thousand years or so before Paul wrote to Philemon, Here's how the psalmist put it in Psalm 111. A good understanding of all those who, say it, do his commandments. Again, leave it up there. That's counterintuitive. A good understanding have all those who obey. That is, you have active obedience. And genuine friendship is all about stirring up active obedience. Listen to me. Listen to me, there is something incredibly mysterious, incredibly powerful, and real about obedience. It unlocks your mind, it unlocks your heart, it opens you up, listen to this, to deeper things that sheer intelligence never touches. And a genuine spiritual friend will both pray for and stir up his friends unto this kind of active obedience. One more thing. One more thing. Genuine spiritual friendship is delighted by growth. You got to look, you got to set your eyes on verse 7 because it's one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. Paul says, for I have derived, he's writing to Philemon, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. 
Do you have any friends like that? I had a couple in our, my office, you know, many years ago. The church was grown. We'd gone to multiple services, and they're saying, you know, we're just going to leave. I said, why are you leaving? Well, you know, just, there's just so many people here, and I mean, we only have a couple of close friends. And I leaned in toward her, and I said, you have more than one close friend? Well, yeah. I said, do you realize what treasure you have? There are people all over the place that have no deep friendships. Look, you would be hard-pressed to come up with a greater compliment than this one. Than to be called a refresher of souls. Think about that. The word refreshed is a really cool word, and you should write this down. It means to give intermission from labor. Let me say it again. The word refreshed means to give intermission from labor. Isn't that cool? Intermission. Anybody see the latest Avenger movie? Jeez, they need an intermission then. Three-hour movie. I didn't have it in my notes. I just thought I'd throw it out there for what it's worth. But as most of you know, that Sailorville Church, being a church planning church, where the Engage Network is getting ready to start a new church, about 70, 70, 75 people all together are going to be either going up there or up to another church plant. We're not actually starting, but we're a part of a couple families going up into the Collins-Maxwell area. One of those families is a dear couple that many who've been around for years know how very dear they are to my wife and I. I don't use them as sermon illustrations or friendship as a sermon illustration. In fact, I can't think of any time I just strictly use their friendship as a sermon illustration. But I purposely do so today because in a couple weeks, they're gone. They are this, these kinds of friends. It was nine years ago that our youngest son was thrown into jail for assault. It was a juvenile jail. It wasn't a public scandal, but almost was. The church at Sailorville had just planted its second church. We were on our way to a third Things are happening. People are getting saved. I mean, it was amazing around here. And I was hanging on by a thread. And hardly anybody knew it except my kids and some of the pastors and these friends. On the day that our son was thrown into jail, they insisted that we come up to their home. And we did. And it was there for the first time, I was allowed to just break down and weep, which is exactly what I did. Now listen carefully to this. Listen carefully. Did that take away the labor that I was undergoing? No. But it did give me intermission. And an intermission is what I needed in that moment. And that's what a friend does. And isn't that what you do when you come to church? Isn't this an intermission for you to some degree? Sure it is. You're laying those labors aside, those stresses aside, those conflicts aside to focus on the Lord. And how much more to have these kinds of friends who will be refreshers to your souls, giving you intermission from your labor. Thank God for them. And by the way, if you move down to verse 20, Paul says, hey, by the way, would you do that for me too? Which, I like that. 
That's what friendships do. And I ask you, when you think about your own life and your own work of being a friend, is there gratitude and godliness and gospel and growth in you, in your friends? We all need to have lots and lots of friends, surfacy friends, acquaintance friends, surf, I mean, uh, you know, marginal friends, but we ought to have the deep ones too that'll get us through these times and become refreshers to our souls. Some of you don't have the friend of friends. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, amen? And no friend on earth, no matter how spiritual he or she is, will replace the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, watch it, rest for your souls. Jesus won't give you just an intermission. He'll give you an eternity of rest if you'll believe on him who died and rose again for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for friends, real, spiritual, deep friends who exhibit gratitude and true, unconditional, well-rounded godliness, who take us deep into the gospel and encourage us to be active in our own obedience and grow with us. They delight us in their growth. I pray, Lord, that you would give us friends who refresh our souls. Give us that intermission that we need as we slug it out for Jesus' sake. And I do pray, Lord, for those here who have never met the friend of friends and that today they might meet him and find rest eternally so for their souls. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.